NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yiridimarang, hello, I'm your host Lawana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio for this Friday the 23rd of June. Coming up on the program today, we hear from Auntie Kate Kroll, a TAFE New South Wales teacher who is involved in the Wurra Program, an initiative developed by TAFE New South Wales to help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates stay connected to their cultural heritage and express themselves creatively. Also coming up on today's show, the federal government has introduced real-time reporting of deaths in custody in an attempt to stop people dying behind bars and in police custody. As well as a chat with Gillian Moody, the Senior Manager Indigenous Connections at National Film and Sound Archives of Australia, who has been working to curate the Bowinda Collection, comprising works of acclaimed First Nations producers and directors, made available on the recently launched NFSA digital streaming platform, the NFSA Player. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles rejects claims the date for Australia Day will change if a voice to Parliament is enshrined. Five people aboard a missing submersible confirmed dead following extensive search efforts. And in cricket, Elise Perry shines for Australia in day one of the Women's Ashes. Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles says the date of Australia Day is not going to change if the voice to Parliament is enshrined in the Constitution. Minister Miles accused the opposition of fear-mongering after a referendum on a voice to Parliament was passed in Parliament on Monday. The Deputy Prime Minister spoke on Channel 9's Today Show. You know, the kind of line of questioning that we've heard from the opposition over the last couple of weeks, uh, which, which goes to Australia Day and a range of other issues, uh, is really an attempt to be spreading fear and be quite political uh, about an issue which should be above politics. I mean, ultimately, this is about recognising our First Nations people in the Constitution and doing that in a practical way through the establishment of, of a voice. The opposition are criticising the timing of the referendum on a voice to Parliament. Parliament passed a majority vote on Monday to hold a referendum on a voice. But the Liberal Party insists the referendum is set up for failure and will be divisive for the Australian public. Liberal Senator Susan Lay says the timing of the referendum is only suited to the Prime Minister's political interests. Our argument very strongly is that that timing is political 
that timing is not about bringing the Australian people with you on something as serious as changing the constitution, the founding document of our country. Our real call to the Prime Minister is press pause, come to the table. We've offered this in the spirit of friendship to actually work through details of a referendum that would pass. Australia's leading medical organisations are calling on state and federal governments to revolutionise the rural health system, with research revealing a spending gap of $6.5 billion. The National Rural Health Alliance, whose members include medical colleges, Aboriginal health organisations and the Rural Flying Doctor Service, commissioned the analysis that shows each rural Australian misses out on $850 in health spending per year. It found far less funding per capita for rural Australians compared to those in urban areas, compounded by workforce shortages. The Rural Australian College of General Practitioners Rural Chair Professor Michael Clements says pooled funding is the answer. Uh, we certainly need uh, more workforce in the rural areas and that, that includes all uh, health, uh, not just GPs. There is actually lots of different sources of health dollars available through state, through federal, uh, through um, the flying doctors, through private hospitals that already are circulating around. And what we need is a system that allows a rural town to uh, coordinate that and, and uh, I guess, bring it into uh, one setting. A Monash professor says although the federal government's latest housing fund is important in building delivery, more innovation is required for sustainability. The federal government has pledged $10 billion towards its Housing Australia Future Fund. Professor of Architecture and CEO of Building 4.0, CRC Matthew Atchison, says if more investment is put into current market, Australia may not be able to provide extra housing, resulting in unintended inflation. He says he would like the government to consider new business and ownership models. There's new tools to talk about streamlining planning. Um, in building design, for example, we could have new house plans that are more flexible and more variety, more efficient. Uh, in terms of building operation, we want to have lower energy buildings, which means cheaper rents for people and cheaper cost of housing. And then finally, also thinking about adding into housing supply by the adaptive reuse of other buildings, which are no longer being used for their original purpose, such as office buildings and the like. A Russian diplomat is currently squatting on a site where his country was blocked from building a new embassy near Parliament House in Canberra. Australian federal police officers are watching the man but have not been able to arrest him because he reportedly has diplomatic immunity. He has been staying in a portable building on that otherwise vacant construction site. Media reports a spokesperson for Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill said the government was preparing to seize the land but gave no further details. Opposition leader Peter Dutton says they will cooperate with the government's response as it's in the national best interest. They've got uh, options available to them under the law. There are diplomatic options and representations that can be made and they'll weigh up all of those equities, including obviously uh, the presence that we have uh, in, in Moscow and they will make decisions and we will support those decisions because uh, that's uh, in our country's best interest. Uh, the Russian uh, staff or diplomat or uh, I don't know his status but uh, whatever it is um, should vacate the site and should adhere to uh, the laws of our country. Moscow is expected to launch legal action to challenge legislation pushed through the parliament last week denying Russia access to the prime Yaralamla bloc on national security grounds.
Ukrainian missiles have struck the Chonar Road bridge connecting Crimea with Russian-held parts of the southern Kurzon region. The so-called Gate to Crimea, known by Russians with a different spelling as the Chonar Bridge, is one of a handful of links between Crimea, which Moscow angst from Ukraine in 2014. Russian investigators said four missiles have been fired by Ukrainian forces at the bridge. Repairing the Chonar Road bridge could take up to several weeks. The five people aboard a missing submersible have been confirmed dead after a Canadian deep-sea robot discovered the vessel's wreckage on Thursday morning. It brings an end to the massive search operation for the submersible, which went missing during a voyage to the Titanic. U.S. Coast Guard Admiral John Merger says the debris is consistent with a catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. This morning, an ROV, or remote-operated vehicle, from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. In consultation... With experts from within the Unified Command, the debris is consistent with the catastrophic loss of the pressure chamber. Upon this determination, we immediately notified the families. Rescue teams from several countries have spent days searching thousands of square kilometres of open seas with planes and ships for any sign of the 22-foot Titan, operated by US-based Ocean Gate Expeditions. Ocean Gate said in a statement that the men were true explorers who shared a distinct spirit of adventure and offered their condolences to the families during this time. Rain-triggered floods has wrecked various towns of India's northeastern Assam state, forcing residents to vacate their homes and take shelter on roads. The flood situation in Assam's Nalbri town worsened as around 45,000 locals were affected and seen wading through water, carrying their belongings as the flood water entered their homes. The river Pagladia saw a rise in water level after it witnessed torrential rain, crossing the danger level mark. Affected villager Jutish Rouge Bonshi says the floods have destroyed his house. I have no one to help me. My wife and I are now alone. I am sick, and if I go to my house, which is flooded, I will fall down. The flood water has damaged my home and most of my belongings. <laughs> A new report has found that half of young Australians want to disconnect from social media, but the fear of missing out keeps them logged in. The survey from Mental Health Foundation Headspace revealed young people are aware that social media does more harm than good, with almost half of respondents to a survey saying that they see online as more negative than positive. Despite this awareness, one-third feel as though they should use social media more and feel pressured to keep abreast of news and current events. Headspace also found one in three young people experience problematic social media use. More young women than young men fell into this category and the rate was higher for young LGBTQI plus youth. There have been hundreds of calls for help after heavy rain battered Adelaide and the surrounding hills area. Rain is set to ease today, but more showers and possible thunderstorms are expected over the weekend. 
The SES has so far responded to 240 calls for assistance, mostly relating to property damage and riverine flooding. The emergency services are calling for commuters to cautiously plan their travel and find an alternate route if confronted with floodwaters. About 70 millimetres of rain was recorded yesterday and further falls are expected later on Friday. And now to cricket. Elise Perry fell just short of a record equaling third test century after being caught for 99 before Australia went to stumps at 7-3-2-7 on day one of the Ashes. Perry, Australia's best player for the past decade, was agonisingly close to joining Jill Kanar and Betty Wilson as the nation's only players with three test tonnes. But Perry's Trent Bridge innings has given Australia the upper hand after the first day of the sole test at the start of the multi-platform series. The test match kicks off the multi-platform series with four points on the line in this match and two points available for each of the one-day internationals and three T20s. Australia have held the Ashes since 2015, winning or drawing the past four series. And now a look at today's weather. Broome, sunny 26. Perth, showers easing 15. Adelaide, similar conditions 16. Melbourne, a shower or two, clearing 13. Hobart, rain 11. Albury-Wodonga, cloudy 9. Canberra, showers easing 11. Wollongong, a shower or two, then sunny 18. Sydney, much the same, 18. Newcastle, a shower or two, windy 20. Brisbane, mostly sunny 27. Townsville, partly cloudy 27. Cairns, partly cloudy 28. Alice Springs, sunny 24, Darwin, similar conditions 32, and the Torres Strait Islands, partly cloudy 29. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back to NITV Radio. I'm your host, Luana Grant. And that was Paint This Land by Busby Maru, released in 2017 from the album Postcards from the Shell House. Coming up on the program, a conversation with Gillian Moody, the Senior Manager Indigenous Connections at National Film and Sound Archives of Australia. Curator of the Bowinda Collection, comprising works of leading First Nations directors and producers, now available on NFSA's just-launched digital streaming service, the NFSA Player. And the federal government has introduced real-time reporting of deaths in custody, and as you'll hear, the initiative aims to stop people dying behind bars and in police custody. But first, let's explore the Wara Program, a successful initiative that's making a difference for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across correctional centres in New South Wales. The Wara Program is an initiative that has been developed by TAFE New South Wales to help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates at the Bathurst Correctional Centre stay connected to their cultural heritage and express themselves creatively. Since the program first started, it has been a huge success and has since expanded into other correctional centres across New South Wales. Auntie Kate Kroll is a TAFE New South Wales teacher and is involved in the program and joins me today. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat to NITV Radio about this incredible program. It's my pleasure, Luana. It's, it's wonderful to speak with you today. Could you just tell me a bit about how the program came about and where the idea came from? There was a, a young woman called Leanne Pope who was already running a program in Bathurst face-to-face and the success of that was fabulous and so it was decided that, that it should be pitched to TAFE mm-hmm. to develop a certificate course, a proper accredited course, so that all the boys who do the course get a certificate and accreditation they can take on to further learning. And so the Wurra course was developed and it was developed just when COVID started and so it was developed to be delivered online. Mm-hmm. And this was a fantastic thing to happen because um, then COVID caused the chaos that COVID caused and we had three people trained up to deliver across New South Wales and we were able to keep courses and interest and, and involvement in learning about culture up in all those correctional centres that we were working in instead of just abandoning all the face-to-face classes. Can you explain a bit about how the course is structured and what sort of activities are the men learning um, and how long, I guess, does the program also run for? We run the course only over four days, but it's an intensive course Mm. and the whole structure of the course is designed to create a safe place for people to learn and to share culture. Some people don't know anything about their culture because they were adopted when they were little kids or their parents were part of the stolen generation. And other people have really strong connection to country. And there's lots of different age groups in the classes as well. They all start their journey at a different place. The very first thing we do is create a safe place for people to share. And so we, we share a little bit about ourselves. And you can see the people becoming more and more confident as we work through really basic introduction to drawing, painting. We talk about colour and palette and the colour of country. And we get people to talk about the places they live in and think about artists who represent their country and people they're familiar with. It starts off with that really simple few drawing lessons, a few few painting lessons, learning how to mix all the colours of their country, learning how to see. I, I believe that you know, as you know, our people are tenacious and resilient and and we used to have acute sight and hearing because we needed to survive and see opportunities in our environment. And we sort of lost that. A lot of people who, who live in, in the areas that were colonised early have lost that acute sight and hearing. Mm-hmm. So we do a few a few really specific drawing exercises to try and click on observation. Um, so anyway, the boys really enjoy it. They have a lot of fun. And the whole time we're doing it, we're talking about identity and culture. Yeah, and that's so important, I guess, like from my uh, pop's background in teaching language, he would go to, um, you know, correctional centres and juvenile justice facilities and he would teach language. And it's so important. I feel like culture really gives you a sense of pride and, um, you know, something to keep you grounded. And I know that you were explaining the meaning behind the program name Wurra is a Wiradjuri word. And I just was wondering if you could tell us the meaning behind it and why it's so important to the course. Well, the, the young woman who started the original development of the course, Leanne, is a Wiradjuri woman, and so obviously she used a word from her language. So Wurra means opening doors, stepping forward, moving forward. And it's a really perfect word to describe this first step for some boys into culture and learning about their background and their history and starting to ring up 
aunties and uncles and say, hey, what's my totem? Mm. Or where am I from? Or can you tell me a creation story from where I grew up? Yeah, it's great. Through this course, it's provided the participants to connect with culture and community and identity, as you said. What has been the response to the program by the men that have been involved in it? Um, personally, how have they expressed how this program has benefited them in their futures? As you can imagine, teaching a group of really diverse people can be exhilarating and exhausting. Mm. And you're, you're on your toes the whole time looking for, you know, sometimes it, some boys are a bit tough they have to present a bit tough so you're looking for that little chink where you can where you can help them move forward but the the things that I remember that moved me to tears were when I was teaching in in Cessnock in in remand in Cessnock and we were we'd worked through the week and there'd been a few disagreements and arguments and this very tall well-built 40 year old man stood up at the end um, of the course and he said auntie I know you don't have to come here so I want to thank you for coming here he said some of our boys have lost their way you know and he was pretty frank they got into the drugs and all that or they've done stupid things they've made mistakes but you're bringing them back to culture you're helping to bring them home and he had big fat tears running down his cheeks and it was just I was all choked up. I just mm. thought that's what it's all about. If those boys walk out of that room a couple of inches taller at the end of a few days' work, my work's worth it. I can imagine being a part of a program such as this would be so incredibly rewarding for you. How have you found it personally? The thing that I'm really enjoying is that I'm developing a relationship across generations but also over time now. So mm. I've been teaching for three years. And so boys who I taught three years ago will come and, oh, I heard you were here. And they'll bring in their paintings or they'll, you know, they're, they're finalists in the NAIDOC comps and things like that. You know, they're really proud of themselves mm. and they're really proud of their achievements. There's one old man, he's got a walker and, um, and he had a bit of, you know, he's a bit forgetful, a little tiny touch of dementia there. And we did, went through all the exercises and mixing colour and he started on his first ever painting and his totem was an emu. Hmm. And I went over and I said to him, how are you going with that? And he said, if I painted it any better, they'd run off the page. <laughs> That's fantastic. I love it. It made me so happy that he was into it. You know, he'd found something that gave him pleasure inside a correctional centre. And the other thing that happened with that old man is I'd taken a lot of books. So this old man was looking at one of those books while he was waiting for his emus to dry. And he started singing in language. And all the hairs on my arms stood up. Mm-hmm. And I just listened to him quietly singing in language. He said, I haven't sung since I lived on country with my grandparents. Now, that would have been over 60 years ago. And he's sitting in front of me singing in language. How wonderful is that? Mm-hmm. It gives me so much joy. Just to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you, since it's first been set up and now it's being delivered to correctional centres across New South Wales, what plans do you have uh, for the future of this program? This year, already we've started delivering the Word 2 program. Mm-hmm. So what I'm doing, for example, at the moment I'm working in Macquarie Correctional Centre and I'm delivering the Wurra 1 program this week and that group of 10 men will finish up Wurra 1 and will roll straight into Wurra 2, which is a much more in-depth 
another week, another four days. They're, they're looking at different ways of expressing themselves. They're looking at symbols from right across Australia and different language groups have different symbols and explaining that, you know, the symbols that you use in Tasmania aren't going to be the same symbols you've got in the desert or up in Cairns because you, the symbols reflect the environment or the animals that you're hunting or, or the, the, um, the weather, um, the geographical features of where you are. And so then getting boys to talk about family structures and a bit more about politics. And, and we, we touch on things like, you know, referendums and, and having voices and we touch on all sorts of things. So because you've had a week with them, they're much more relaxed mm. and less guarded. And then they do a painting of a creation story and do some drawings uh, using symbols to tell stories. So learning how to tell a story with a painting or a drawing which is fantastic. Mm. And so, so we're already moving into that second stage and then we're looking at how we can possibly deliver the full certificate or is it good to sort of leave the carrot there for the boys to go and enrol in TAFE when they get out? Because if we can have the boys step into creativity and culture, mm. then they're less likely to go back to the... Um, Correctional Centre and being incarcerated. It's been wonderful to talk to you and thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's really good to let people know what we're doing and in a way it's really good to to humanise all those boys who have been incarcerated and be able to see them as one of us Mm. and people who, who are reconnecting with culture and community. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. And that was Auntie Kate Kroll, facilitator of the Wara program at TAFE New South Wales. Now time for a break and a track by Kev Carmody coming up. And when we return, a new federal government initiative aiming to reduce or prevent people dying behind bars. Stay tuned. The federal government has introduced real-time reporting of deaths in custody in an attempt to stop people dying behind bars and in police custody. But families of those who have died, academics and politicians, say more needs to be done to stop Indigenous deaths in custody. Alan Lee reports. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody handed down its recommendations 32 years ago, more than 540 Indigenous people have died in custody. That's a statistic the federal government has labelled a national shame. In a move away from the current system of quarterly reporting, a new dashboard will show the number of deaths in police custody prisons and youth detention centres in real time. Mark Dreyfus is the Federal Attorney General. Real-time reporting will enable the collection of data from the states and territories. It'll be made public in as close to real time as we can make it. And using that data, we can make changes to custodial practices to see if we can bring deaths in custody to an end, because that's got to be the objective. While the Australian Institute of Criminology has monitored deaths in custody since 1992, until now there's been no real-time reporting. The dashboard on their website shows that since January, six Indigenous men have died in custody. Four died in prison and two were in police custody. The move has been welcomed, but advocates say more needs to be done to prevent deaths in custody. Mark Dreyfus again. We can do more than one thing. Uh, This is not the whole solution, real-time reporting of deaths in custody, but it's part of the solution. 
April Day is the daughter of Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day, who died in custody in 2017. I don't see how having this database where it de-identifies our mob, uh, dehumanises our people, um, how that is going to actually address the systemic issues that are leading to our loved ones dying in custody. I know that this was a recommendation from the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and I'm always the first to welcome any recommendation being implemented, but it needs to be done so in a meaningful way and it needs to be co-designed and with um, our families and the community's input. Otherwise, to me, it is just a tokenistic gesture. Regular reporting of Indigenous deaths in custody was one of the 339 recommendations made in the 1991 World Commission. A review in 2018 found just over half had been implemented, which Independent Senator Lydia Thorpe says is not good enough. Out of all of those recommendations, why is that the priority? That's not saving our lives. It's counting the body bags. And I think that, um, you know, they could have done better than that. Opposition spokeswoman for Indigenous Australians, Jacinta Nampajinpa Price, says the emphasis should be on preventing people going to prison in the first place. The road toward incarceration generally starts out because of um, lack of education, fatherlessness, uh, domestic and family violence in the home. And they're, they're all issues that I think are really important to focus on to prevent Um, incarceration in the first place. The real-time monitoring of growing numbers of incarcerated youth was welcomed by legal academic Hannah McGlade. We're still criminalising Aboriginal children throughout the country from the mere age of 10 years old. So we certainly are not uh, implementing Royal Commission key recommendations and need to be doing much better across the nation. While incarceration is the responsibility of the states, the Attorney-General is making a promise. I'm going to make as sure as I can that every one of the recommendations that's still left, still relevant and directed at the Commonwealth of Australia is going to be implemented. Alan Lee, SBS News. Join NITV Radio on Facebook. What our ancestors invented was a sophisticated and robust civilization. The groundbreaking new series. We're rewriting the history of Australia. The First Inventors starts 8.40 Thursday on 10 and NITV. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Gillian Moody is the Senior Manager, Indigenous Connections at National Film and Sound Archives of Australia, as well as a very talented filmmaker. Jill has been responsible for curating the Bowinja Collection, consisting of drama, movies, music and live performances by First Nations creators. The Bowinja Collection is available on the new digital streaming service NFSA Player. NITV Radio's Bertrand Tugendami spoke with Jill about this new collection and what inspired her. Compelling drama, feature films, music and performance titles will come together on the National Film and Sound Archive's new digital streaming platform, NFSA Player, launching in the sidelines of NIDOC Week 2023. The platform features the Bowinja Collection, curated by NFSA's Senior Manager, Indigenous Connections, Gillian Modi. And I'm happy to say Gillian has just joined us on NITV Radio to explore the new platform and its First Nations content. Gillian, first of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. Thanks for having me. 
Now, the Buinja Connection album, hope I'm saying it correctly, uh, you curated it. It features uh, 17 titles, I believe. Uh, can you tell us about this collection? I believe you are saying it correctly, Buinja Collection. And Buinja is a durable word for that means remember. So I curated this collection together for a couple of different reasons. One, because we were launching it around NAIDOC week, so we wanted to sort of have something that showed and related to the theme of For Our Elders. And the second reason for me pulling this together was I wanted to really showcase a selection of films that um, that spoke to our voices on screen and how we've been re- represented over time on screen and in screen stories. So I sort of start with um, a couple of films that were made in the 70s. And, and in the 70s, that was a time where a lot of stories were being made sort of about us, I suppose, by non-Indigenous filmmakers. Often those people were people that just, you know, they had the the skills and opportunity um, of, of being able to um, have the gear, I suppose, the, the cameras and so forth. And they created these um, relationships then with the communities and went in and, and would make these stories um, with the members of the community. And then there was a time that that shifted and it became much more of a meaningful collaboration, I suppose, where suddenly, you know, some of those Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people that were, were involved in those productions, whether it be actors who were inputting into their characters and the, and the, and the scripts of how their characters may speak and behave in different ways, um, they were suddenly being credited for those roles and those, for their um, engagement in those productions in that way. And then eventually there was a real shift that happened through the 90s where a, a big change happened and there was more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people entering into our radio and our film and television sectors. And suddenly we were not only behind, you know, in front of the camera, or, or a microphone, but we were suddenly behind the cameras as well in the key sort of roles as writer, directors, producers and actors. And so the, this collection has the aim of sort of showcasing that in a, in a select way. Um, 17 films, <laughs> you know, there's so many more that we could have also included, but, you know, we had to put a bit of a limit on it. Yeah, but you featured uh, some of the very, very highly celebrated uh, producers and directors, including Warwick Thornton, uh, Rachel Parkins, uh, Bangara Dance Theatre, and uh, yeah, with outstanding productions in there. That's right, yeah. You know, I really wanted to um, to showcase just the ex- the exceptional talent that we have in this industry, um, but also I wanted to sh- sort of showcase some of those elders within our community as well, you know, and the people that were some of our pioneers, I suppose, in um, in screen content and screen storytelling. You know, we've got Lousy Little Sixpence in there, which was a really great collaboration between co-director, who was Uncle Jerry Bostock, and, and his brother, um, Uncle Lester Bostock, who was a producer, and they worked very closely with Alec Morgan, who's a non-Indigenous filmmaker who has um, had a relationship with many Indigenous filmmakers over the years. Um, and they, they created that beautiful documentary called Lousy Little Sixpence. So that's amongst the collection. And then, yes, we've got people where, you know, I really wanted to showcase 
our successes. So we've got Warwick Thornton, Samson and Delilah in there, you know, and of course that was Warwick's debut feature film. It, it had its world premiere at Cannes Film Festival and it went on to win the Camera Dior at that festival. So, you know, these are things that we should celebrate. And then you mentioned, you know, um, Bangara Dance Theatre. So, you know, again, um, Stephen Page, I think, you know, he's had such a huge career and has been a, such a big mentor and support for so many talented storytellers through dance um, that, you know, his his first debut feature, Spear, was a really beautiful example of how storytelling doesn't necessarily have to be a narrative drama, but it can be told through the medium of dance and song and movement as well. Yeah, and you've tried to really be very inclusive of uh, different genres. You've included documentaries, TV series and animations. It must have been really difficult to actually choose what to put in and what to leave out. Absolutely. Um, you know, like I'm in, I've been at the NFSA now for 12 months, so this is a really exciting sort of project for me to be sort of launching out into the world in some ways. Um, it just sort of represents a very small portion of the titles that I've been, you know, able to access and, and have a look at that are in the collection. The NFSA um, has, you know, over 4 million items in its collection and of that there's um, quite a several thousand that are actually related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And so I've only been able to scrape the surface and in some ways I had to rely on my 30 years of experience in this industry and knowledge of of some of these titles and um, and that I felt like could could really nicely represent that arc that I was looking for in, in showing the stories that had been told, you know, in some ways about us and then with us and then by us. Yeah, and what I forgot to mention in the introduction is that you're a producer and director yourself, so maybe yeah. some of your productions could have featured in uh, this collection. Yeah, well, actually, you know, I co-produced um, with Michaela Persky on Black Divas and we have included Black Divas in the collection. You know, my my colleagues and my um, the boss, uh, Patrick McIntyre, really wanted to include Black, Black Divas in there as well because it was, a, you know, it was a work that was created that really showcased our queer community um, and, you know, it was one that, you know, at the time the responses for it were things like that it really created change for some people who had viewed it um, and so that was important then to make sure that we did have those sort of projects as well included so yes there are a couple in there that I have had an opportunity to have worked on there's a couple in there of course that um, you know I had the opportunity to be um, a part of through my previous role many moons ago now when I worked at Screen Australia so I was very aware of some of these projects and I was very aware of of the importance of them because of the the teams that were gathered to create them. And it's said that uh, the NFSA player intends to make all this content available to as large a public as it can possibly be, but it will feature some pay-per-view and some free content as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the NFSA player is a way for the NFSA to move into the digital world. Um, you know, so many other so many people are now accessing it the way that we access screen content and so it's a perfect opportunity for us to also enter into that space and it, it, it you know will allow us over time to really sort of be able to resurface some of the material that is in the archive and also to celebrate um, you know newer material as it comes in as well you know 
it's an opportunity. This is a pilot sort of program, I suppose. It's our first little um, presentation out to audiences. So we wanted to create something where it was on demand, where it's pay-per-view, and then we would have a couple of items on there that are free for people to be able to access just so they can get a taste, I suppose, of what we're looking at doing um, with the NFSA player. Yeah, and uh, knowing that the, the streaming platform is available is something that uh, should be celebrated. And Now, Gillian, anything we haven't covered you'd like to add to the conversation today? Uh, no, I think we've covered everything pretty much from my my retained memory. Okay. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, I think that that's all pretty good. Gillian Moody, Senior Manager, Indigenous Connections at the National Film and Sound Archives of Australia. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today about uh, the new on-demand NFSA platform. Thanks so much for having me. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. And that's all we have time for on today's program. You can listen back to the show or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au. You can also find us on Facebook. NITV Radio will be back next Monday, Wednesday and Fridays, 1 till 2 p.m. with more stories from right across the country. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Luana Grant. Catch you next week.